Gary and I go back a long way. <laughs> when my family became Christians in the 1970s, it was to Ipswich, Seventh-day Adventist Church, that we became Christians, Seventh-day Adventist Christians. And uh, Gary and I, very similar age. Um, if you, we look a little bit like brothers. <laughs> it must have just been the era we were born in or something, I don't know. <laughs> yeah, but uh, we've been greatly blessed by the Enterman family for a long time. 40 years, I don't know, something like that. And, and thank you for blessing us again this morning. And the young people who just sang. Beautiful, amen. Amen. What a, what a message. And, and you don't know this yet, but it ties in perfectly with what we're looking at this morning. Where you, you're on your knees. In this case, Daniel's on his knees until strength is almost gone. And before he calls, or while he is calling, you, you said... The answer is on its way. And that's what we're going to see this morning. Let's bow our heads. Dear Heavenly Father, Lord, ah, Father, we've just been reminded over and over and over this weekend, Lord, through the music, through the testimonies, through the messages, through the sharing over meals, through our personal quiet time with you, Lord, we've just been reminded that you love us so much that you hear our prayers and that you just want us to hold on to you in faith regardless of what we see. And Father, as we open your word again this morning, I just pray that it will have the mighty power that you have promised that is in it to recreate us, to cut us, Lord, like a, a, a double-edged sword, then to heal us and to draw us into a deeper and stronger eternal relationship with you is my prayer in Jesus' name. Amen. Uncertainty. As I've talked with many of you over the weekend, I've heard stories of uncertainty. And you know, sometimes when we think of a prayer camp, we think, well, this is where all the prayer warriors come together because they're the strongest people in the church and they all come together to be repowered and then they go back home and they change their communities. And there's a lot of truth in that. <coughs> but prayer warriors are often prayer warriors because of pain, because of uncertainty, because of things in their lives that pull them, force them, press them down to their knees. And I've heard those stories from many of you this morning. Uncertainty. Have you ever had uncertainty about your health, about your finances, about business, about relationships, about where to live, where God wants you to go? Well, I've got good news for you. So did Daniel. So did Daniel. Daniel also had seasons like that. I'm going to start with a couple of slides. I should have used these yesterday. I apologise that I didn't introduce a lady who I've shared in my last message and others have shared, and some of you may not really know a whole lot about her. I'm going to give you a very brief introduction to a lady called Ellen White, because I'm going to use some, some quotes from her again this morning. <coughs> Excuse me. She was an American author uh, in the 1800s and early 1900s. And she wrote on a vast range of topics, education, marriage, spirituality, health, farming, 
all sorts of different topics, 100,000 handwritten pages across her life. That's the equivalent, roughly, of a 3,000-word essay every day uh, for something like 50, 70 years. <laughs> Lived until she was, uh, about, I think, about 85 years of age. And just recently, with the Smithsonian Magazine put out a, uh, an, a full issue, a special edition, on the 100 most significant Americans of all time. And you can recognise some of the names there, Neil Armstrong, Billy the Kid, Michael Jordan, Howard Hughes, some, some big names, the most influential Americans of all time. And it's very interesting that this lady is in there, recognised by the Smithsonian, the largest network of of uh, museums ac across America. Her works have been translated into 175 languages and counting. The most translated American author of either gender, the most translated female author in history, second place for that role goes to J.K. Rowling with the Harry Potter series, uh, whose last time I checked, uh, about a year ago, it was in about 75 languages. Uh, Ellen White, 175 languages and counting. As a friend of mine once said to me, Julian, Ellen White and the spirit of prophecy that God gave her, because I believe that she had the, the gift of prophecy that we read about in the New Testament, a gift from the Holy Spirit. She was a prophet of God. He said, Julian, Ellen White was not your idea. She wasn't my idea. She wasn't re the result of some committee. She was a gift from God for his people in a very, very serious time in earth's history. Amen? And so that's why I love to read her. It's why I share from her. Some of the things that she wrote are just incredibly beautiful. Other things are like a double-edged sword. <laughs> Which reminds me that what she wrote is inspired. It's not God's word. It's not... Above God, God's word, I wouldn't even say it's equal with God's word. But, but for me, it's a magnifying glass on God's word. And it helps me to see and to understand and to expand things that I see in God's word. I'm going to share some of her quotes with you this morning. One of, this has been, one of them has been quoted already a number of times, that prayer is the opening of the heart to God as to a friend. I read through over the last couple of weeks, that passage in, in Fourth Testimonies, those few pages, and I found some other things written around that. Very soon after that, on page 533, on the same page we read, but why is it that so many prayers are never answered? Wow. I'd like to keep reading. I'd like to know what the answer is. But then I read it and I went, mm, maybe I'd just rather go back to the first one and just remember that prayer is the opening of the heart to a friend. <laughs> Communion with God imparts to the soul an intimate knowledge of his will. But many who profess the faith know not what true conversion is. They have no experience in communion with the Father through Jesus Christ and have never felt the power of divine grace to sanctify the heart. Praying and sinning, sinning and praying, their lives are full of malice, deceit, envy, jealousy and self-love. The prayers of this class are an abomination to God. True prayer engages the energies of the soul and affects the life. We saw that beautifully yesterday with Erika where he was talking about the deep values and how they affect the surface and what we see in people's lives. It's another way of saying what we've just read there. She goes on on the next page. 
the steady progress of our work, she's talking about the work of the church at the time, the steady progress of our work and our increased facilities or institutions or projects or whatever we're doing as a church are filling the hearts and minds of many of our people with satisfaction and pride, which we fear will take the place of the love of God in the soul. Busy activity in the mechanical part of even the work of God may so occupy the mind that prayer shall be neglected and self-importance and self-sufficiency so ready to urge their way shall take the place of true goodness, meekness and lowliness of heart. Wow, as I read that last paragraph, I saw that mechanical part of even the work of God and I looked at my life and I was convicted again that yeah, I can get so busy doing God's work that I forget to spend time with the God of the work. And it just reminded me again, Julian, back to your knees. We're looking at Daniel, a top level statesman in the empire that was ruling the world. He was a busy, busy man. But he took the time three times a day to pray because he knew that he needed it. On page 534 in that same section, there is need of prayer. Most earnest, fervent, agonising prayer. Until, as the young people saying, we're worn out. But while we are calling, the answer is on its way. Daniel prayed to God, not exalting himself or claiming any goodness. O Lord, hear. O Lord, forgive. O Lord, listen and act. Do not delay for your own sake, my God, for your city and your people are called by your name. This is what James calls the effectual fervent prayer. Effectual fervent prayer. This morning we're going to look at Daniel's prayer. That's what it's called, Daniel's prayer in the ninth chapter of the book of Daniel. Just to set the scene of where we're at, Daniel is in his mid-80s. You ever thought that when some of these Bible writers write, if they're writing about the whole of their life, which Daniel did, they're probably not writing until they've lived it. So they're actually really, really old when they're writing because otherwise they couldn't have written it. And so Daniel is actually in his mid-80s when he's writing. And, in, and he's in his mid-80s when he's praying this prayer in Daniel chapter 9. And as a bridge from the last message where I was talking about how God rules in the kingdoms of men and gives it to whomever he chooses, Daniel's, the, the events of Daniel 9 are happening just a few months after God had taken the kingdom from Babylon and given it to the Medes and the Persians. This is a few months after the head of gold gives way to the chest and arms of silver. And incredibly, in one of the great feats of statesmanship, Daniel is still one of the leaders of the new empire. God is in control of empires and individuals. And that's where he is at. Isaiah, going back 100 years before, has already written and foretold that a man named Cyrus will be the king when the end of the 70 years of captivity occurs. These are important things. Just, just so that we can get an understanding of Daniel's desperation in chapter 9. So Isaiah has said Cyrus will be the king at the end 
of the 70 years of captivity. Daniel is still in captivity. He's still in Babylon, even though he's a statesman. And he's wanting for his people to be able to go back to Jerusalem. And Jeremiah 25 has spoken about that. But it's still going to be a couple more years before the end of that prophecy. And Daniel knows it. We're going to go through the chapter, through Daniel's prayer, verse by verse. It's not the most exciting way to hear a presentation. It's what we call exegesis, where we just go through line upon line, precept upon precept, as it says in Isaiah 28.10. Let's go, if you've got your Bibles there, let's, let's go there right now. Daniel chapter 9, verse 1. So we've got Daniel... And he's got some big questions. And we're going to see why he has some very, very big questions. You see, as, as, Daniel, sorry, as Matt shared last night, Daniel kept looking and looking and looking because he was searching for something. He was searching. And as he studied Isaiah and Jeremiah, he saw some interesting things. And here he talks about his study of Jeremiah. So Daniel chapter 9, verse 1. In the first year of Darius, the son of Ahasuerus, of the lineage of the Medes, who was made king over the realm of the Chaldeans, in the first year of his reign, I, Daniel, understood by the books the number of the years specified by the word of the Lord through Jeremiah the prophet that he would accomplish 70 years in the desolations of Jerusalem. He knew that this 70 years of captivity were about to finish. But the vision that he had just received earlier in chapter 8 seemed to very clearly show that the trouble for Jerusalem was not over. The sanctuary was going to be desecrated. The city was going to be destroyed. And Daniel, who's right on the verge of the 70-year prophecy being fulfilled and knowing that his God is faithful and knowing that they're going to be going back to Jerusalem, all of a sudden gets this vision that says your city is doomed. The sanctuary is going to be desecrated again. And he's like, no, 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 no. And he, he comes with some serious questions. Was God going to delay or change his mind? just on the verge of the promised land, as it were, is God going to change his mind? Was the 70-year prophecy a conditional prophecy? See, Daniel's been studying the prophecies. He knows about conditional prophecy, where God says, this will happen if you do this. Had they failed to meet the conditions that would bring about their imminent release, were his people going to be in captivity for more than 70 years? Interesting questions, aren't they? Have you ever, or are you now, at a position in your life where you are saying, is God going to delay or change his mind? Have I failed to meet the conditions that would bring about my imminent release? Am I going to be in captivity for a longer period than I thought? That's where Daniel was at. Let's read verse 3. Then I set my face toward the Lord God to make request by prayer and supplication with fasting, sackcloth and ashes. What was Daniel's first action 
when faced with this uncertainty? He prayed. And he prayed an earnest, fervent prayer with sackcloth and ashes. Like Jehoshaphat and the people of Judah in Second Chronicles, where they're up against an unbeatable army who are coming in to destroy them. In 2 Chronicles 20 verse 12, they say, Lord, we don't know what to do, but our eyes are on you. And then we get across to 2 Chronicles 2020, a great verse for last year, 2020, in times of uncertainty, where we want 2020 vision. And this is what the Jehoshaphat or the ends up saying to Judah, but it's a message from God. Believe in the Lord your God and you shall be established. Believe his prophets and you shall prosper. Daniel is still on his knees. Let's read verses four to six. And I prayed to the Lord my God and made confession. This is Daniel confessing here. Daniel, the great hero of faith. I made confession and said, O Lord, great and awesome God, who keeps his covenant and mercy with those who love him and with those who keep his commandments, we have sinned and committed iniquity. We have done wickedly and rebelled, even by departing from your precepts and your judgments. Neither have we heeded your servants, the prophets, who spoke in your name to our kings and our princes, to our fathers and all the people of the land. Daniel humbles himself in the eyes of the Lord. And just like in the Lord's Prayer, where they say, Lord, teach us to pray, it's our Father, forgive us our sins. It's communal. It's all of us here, friends. We're in this together. We're confessing together. Daniel confesses, humbles himself on his knees before God. In the Great Controversy, page 470, we read, the prophet Daniel was an example of true sanctification. Wouldn't you love that on your tombstone? There's only two people that I know of where, that Ellen White described as people who were truly sanctified. One is Daniel, and the other wrote the book of Revelation. Daniel and Revelation. Isn't it interesting? John the Beloved. In the life of the, the Apostle John, true sanctification was exemplified. Both Daniel and John are described as the beloved. Daniel, the beloved of heaven. Jesus, the beloved, oh, sorry, Daniel, uh, John, the beloved disciple of Jesus. Both of them saw their beloved Jerusalem destroyed. One in around 600 BC, the other in AD 70. Both of them were persecuted seriously for their faith. Both of them were martyrs, but they didn't die. One was thrown in a pot of boiling oil and one was thrown in a den of lions. Interesting parallels. They both saw their loved ones. They, John saw or heard of the other disciples all being martyred. Daniel saw not his three friends, but others of his peers in Jerusalem killed. And at the end of their lives, they both are told by God, pick up your pens and write. And friends, it's pure gold that drips out of those pens. The books of Daniel and Revelation. True sanctification. 
His long life was filled up with noble service for his master. He was a man greatly beloved of heaven. Yet instead of claiming to be pure and holy, this honoured prophet identified himself with the really sinful of Israel as he pleaded before God in behalf of his people. Let's read verse 7. O Lord, righteousness belongs to you, but to us, shame of face. As it is this day, to the men of Judah, to the inhabitants of Jerusalem and all Israel, those near and those far off in all the countries to which you have driven them because of the unfaithfulness which they have committed against you. What is righteousness? What is this righteousness that belongs to God? It's a keeping of a law. It's a keeping of a moral law free from guilt or sin. Are you righteous? Are you free from guilt and sin? Let's keep going. Daniel 9, 8 to 12. O Lord, to us belongs shame of face. To our kings, our princes and our fathers, because we have sinned against you. To the Lord, our God, belong mercy and forgiveness, though we have rebelled against him. We have not obeyed the voice of the Lord our God to walk in his laws, which he set before us by his servants, the prophets. Yes, all Israel has transgressed your law and has departed so as not to obey your voice. Therefore, the curse and the oath written in the law of Moses, the servant of God, have been poured out on us because we have sinned against him. And he has confirmed his words, which he spoke against us and against our judges who judged us by bringing upon us a great disaster. For under the whole heaven, such has never been done as what has been done to Jerusalem. Mercy and forgiveness belong to God. Jerusalem lay in ruins for 70 years. And Daniel is now asking for some of that mercy and forgiveness so that he and his people can return home. In verses 13 and 14, we see that Daniel hasn't just been studying Jeremiah. Daniel has also been studying Moses the writings of Moses. To me, it's a reminder that we are to be people of the book, the whole book. Tota Scriptura, as the Protestant reformers said, Tota Scriptura, the whole of Scripture, all of the revealed Word of God. And I would include the spirit of prophecy in that. Tota Scriptura, all the words of God. Because all Scripture is given by inspiration of God. To read verse 15. Actually, sorry, we're only up to 13. Let's read 13. As it is written in the law of Moses, all this disaster has come upon us, yet we have not made our prayer before the Lord our God that we might turn from our iniquities and understand your truth. Therefore, the Lord has kept the disaster in mind and brought it upon us. For the Lord our God is righteous in all the works which he does, though we have not obeyed his voice. And verse 15, And now, O Lord our God, who brought your people out of the land of Egypt with a mighty hand and made yourself a name as it is this day. And there's a pause. And we think that Daniel is going to go into his supplication. Lord, deliver us. It's this, it's this hinging point in his prayer where many other men and women, I would have started probably 10 verses before this saying, Lord, help me, help me. Daniel, what does he do when he's about to ask for help? Mighty hand and yourself, uh, sorry, um, 
lost my place here, end of 15, and made yourself a name as it is this day, pause, we have sinned, we have done wickedly. Daniel is on his knees admitting that he is a sinner in need of a saviour. Let's go into 16 to 19. I don't know how we're going for time, Sharissa. I think we're probably running a little bit late, but I'll, uh, I'll keep it moving. Let's read verses 16 to 19. O Lord, according to all your righteousness, I pray, let your anger and your fury be turned away from your city, Jerusalem, your holy mountain, because of our sins and for the iniquities of our fathers, Jerusalem and your people, are a reproach to all those around us. Now, therefore, our God, hear the prayer of your servant and his supplications, and for the Lord's sake, cause your face to shine on your sanctuary, which is desolate. O oh my God, incline your ear and hear, open your eyes and see our desolations and the city which is called, called by your name. And here's the heart of it, friends. For we do not present our supplications before you because of our righteous deeds but because of your great mercies. O Lord, hear, O Lord, forgive, O Lord, listen and act. Do not delay for your own sake, my God, for your city and your people are called by your name. Friends, the only thing that Daniel brings to this prayer, the only thing that Daniel the man the mighty hero of faith, arguably the greatest God-fearing statesman of history, the man who 65 years earlier took a stand to not defile himself with the king's food at the risk of his own life, the man to whom God gave visions and the interpretation of dreams, revealing the corridors of time right down to our day, the man who prayed even though prayer to God was illegal and punishable by death, the man who was thrown as a martyr to the lions for his faith and his prayers, the man who even the kings of Babylon described as one in whom dwells the spirit of the holy gods, the only thing that Daniel, the man, the man who Ellen White described as an example of true sanctification, the man who the mighty angel Gabriel described as greatly beloved in heaven and told him that he would have an inheritance in heaven at the end of his days, the man whom Jesus Christ himself recognised as a prophet of his father. That man, the only thing that he brings in his prayer is an admission of his sin and his need of a saviour. He could have gone back through his life and said, Lord, look what you did through me in chapter two. Remember what happened to my mates in this chapter and this chapter and, and how you helped me with Belshazzar and the writing on the wall and here I am now and you've still got me. You've me. Lord, I, I, I... No. The only thing he could bring was his admission of sin and his need of a saviour. Nothing in my hand I bring but to thy precious cross I cling. Friends, if we learn nothing else from Daniel's prayer, let's be reminded of our utter helplessness and our need of a saviour. As Daniel 9, 18 says, Lord, we do not present our supplications before you because of our righteous deeds, but because of your great mercies. If you're here this morning and you're struggling 
with health or business or finance or relationships or some other decision in your life. That's what God wants to hear. Humble yourself in the eyes of the Lord and he will lift you up. God answers prayers. Often not in the way or the time that we would like them answered. And maybe the only time he's going to lift you up is when he lifts you off the ground to take you to heaven. But friends, that's going to be enough. That's going to be enough. Lord, lift, the, lift me up above this burden. Lift me up, lift me up against this business problem. Lift me up against this financial problem. Lift me up above this relationship problem, this health problem. Lord, lift me up, lift me up. Maybe his answer is no. I need you to stay there in that. I've got things that I need you to learn so that ultimately I can lift you up for an eternity with me. Other times he will lift you up above those problems. But have faith. Have faith that he knows what is best. As Dada beautifully shared this morning from Matthew 8 with the centurion who came to Jesus. It's written about in the Desire of Ages. The centurion said of himself, I am not worthy. That's all he could bring. I'm not worthy. His heart had been touched by the grace of Christ. He saw his own unworthiness, yet he feared not to ask help. He trusted not to his own goodness. His argument was his great need. His faith took hold upon Christ in his true character. He did not believe in him merely as a worker of miracles, but as the friend and saviour of mankind. Friends, we have a friend. As the old song used to go, we have friends in high places. I think it was Larnell Harris or Wintley Phipps or someone. Larnell, was it? Yeah. I've got friends in high places. And so do you. There's a message in the Bible that is specifically for God's remnant church. His visible remnant church. And it's a message that we don't particularly like to look at because it's a little bit uncomfortable. But let's have a quick read through it. This is the message to the church of Laodicea in Revelation 3. And to the angel of the church of the Laodiceans write, these things says the Amen, the faithful and true witness, the beginning of the creation of God. I know your works, that you are neither cold nor hot. I could wish you were cold or hot, so then, because you are lukewarm and neither cold nor hot, I will vomit you out of my mouth. Because you say, I am rich, have become wealthy and have need of nothing. And do not know that you are wretched, miserable, poor, blind and naked. I counsel you to buy from me gold refined in the fire that you may be rich and white garments that you may be clothed. That the shame of your nakedness may not be revealed and anoint your eyes with the eye salve that you may see. As many as I love I rebuke and chasten. Therefore, be zealous and repent. Behold, I stand at the door and knock. If anyone hears my voice and opens the door, I will come into him and dine with him and he with me. To him who overcomes, I will grant to sit with me on my throne, as I also overcame and sat down with my father on his throne. He who has an ear, let him hear what the Spirit says to the churches. Friends, do you feel wretched, miserable, poor, blind and naked? 
Apart from Jesus, yes. I've got good news. If you go to the Gospels and look at who Jesus came to save, who he spent time with, it was with the wretched, the miserable, the poor, the blind, and the naked. Friends, we have a saviour. Because of our condition, we have a saviour. We have a saviour who is willing to save. Friends, that's the gospel. That's the good news. We are wretched, poor, miserable, blind and naked. But we don't have to stay here. Because Jesus says, come to me and be covered with my righteousness. We don't have to be naked anymore because of what Christ can do and is doing in our lives. In the Desire of Ages, page 317. It is thus that every sinner may come to Christ. It's not that every righteous person may come to Christ. It's that every sinner may come to Christ. Not by works of righteousness which we have done, but according to his mercy he saved us. When Satan tells you that you are a sinner and cannot hope to receive blessings from God, tell him that Christ came into the world to save sinners. We have nothing to recommend us to God. But the plea that we may urge now and ever is our utterly helpless condition that makes his redeeming power a necessity. Renouncing all self-dependence, we may look to the cross of Calvary and say, in my hand no price I bring, simply to thy cross I cling. And friends, if we were here for the rest of the week, we would move into some messages. I'd love to share you messages on blessed assurance and The fact that God loves us so much that he came to get us while we were sinners, but he loves us so much that he doesn't want to leave us there. He wants to give us a new life. He wants to take us from one stage of sanctification as we were looking at in the lives of Daniel and John. He wants to make us holy. He wants us to be holy as he is holy. And through the power of Christ, he can do that in our lives. Daniel 9, 20 to 23 And here we come back to the song the young people sang so beautifully. Now while I was speaking, praying and confessing my sin and the sin of my people, Israel, and presenting my supplication before the Lord my God for the holy mountain of my God. Yes, while I was speaking in prayer, the man Gabriel, whom I had seen in the vision at the beginning, being caused to fly swiftly, reached me about the time of the evening offering. And he informed me and talked with me and said, Oh, Daniel, I have now come forth to give you skill to understand. At the beginning of your supplications, the command went out and I have come to tell you, for you are greatly beloved. Therefore, consider the matter and understand the vision. And he goes on to share a vision which the great mathematician and physicist and theologian Sir Isaac Newton called these next verses the foundation of the Christian faith. They're somewhat difficult to read unless you understand the principles of prophetic interpretation But as you read them through, you realise that what what this vision is about is that Daniel, there is a saviour. There is a saviour and he is coming. He's coming to this earth. Amen. Amen. When Peter came to Jesus in Matthew 18, right near the end of the 490 year prophecy that is predicted here, and you'll remember it, where Jesus, the sacrifice, the Messiah is cut off in the midst of the last week. It's that prophecy that the angel explains. When Peter comes to him and says, Lord, when my brother sins against me, how many times should I forgive him? Seven times? Jesus answered, I don't say to you up to seven times, but up to 70 times seven. Friends, that's 490 times 
Are you seeing a link here? A 490-year prophecy? Jesus was casting his eyes back across the centuries to the time of Daniel, recalling the hundreds and hundreds of annual days of atonement where he had forgiven all the sins of Israel, year after year, century after century. For 490 years, 70 weeks of years, 70 times seven years from 457 BC through ultimately to 34 AD, God was forgiving his people on every annual day of atonement, 70 times seven. And friends, I thank God that forgiveness didn't end with Jesus at the cross. He still forgives our sins. He still covers us with his righteousness. He still gives us power to overcome sin. It's all from him. In that beautiful book, Steps to Christ, which by the way is the most translated book of Ellen White's, 175 languages and counting. On page 64, she speaks right to our hearts with one of the most encouraging paragraphs in her writings. She says, There are those who have known the pardoning love of Christ and who really desire to be children of God, yet they realise that their character is imperfect, their life faulty, and they are ready to doubt whether their hearts have been renewed by the Holy Spirit. To such, I would say, Do not draw back in despair. We, the author included, we shall often have to bow down and weep at the feet of Jesus because of our shortcomings and mistakes, but we are not to be discouraged. Friends, when you are looking at yourself and realising that you are not right where God wants you to be, because of something you've just said or something you've thought or something you've done, fall down and weep at the feet of Jesus like Daniel did, like Ellen White did and confess your shortcomings and mistakes. But don't be discouraged because we have a saviour who came to save sinners, who came to save the poor, the miserable, the wretched, the blind, the naked. We have a saviour. If there's nothing else that we learn From this, Lord, we do not present our supplications before you because of our righteous deeds, but because of your great mercies. If there's nothing else that we learn, let us be reminded of our absolute and total need of a saviour and reminded that we have a saviour. I invite you today that if you want to accept that invitation for the first time or for the 490th time, the 600th time, the 1,000th time, I invite you to stand and pray with me. Friends, we have a righteous saviour who hears our prayers, a saviour who forgives, a saviour who acts, a saviour who loves, a saviour who saves. Let's talk to him now. Father in heaven, Lord, as we look at the life of even just Daniel, one of our brothers, Lord, and compare our lives with him, Lord, we see our failures. We see our great lack. And Lord, when we look at the perfect life of Christ, Lord, we realise how far we are from you, from where you would have us be. But Lord, your word promises that you will sanctify us, that you will fill us with your Holy Spirit. And Lord, We come before you this morning claiming your promise in Philippians 1.6. 
where you say that He, Lord, that's you who have begun a good work in us, will complete it until the day of Jesus Christ. Lord, we claim that in faith. We, we hold it up before you, Lord, and we say, we want that in our lives. Please give us that now and in the days and weeks and years ahead, Lord. Lord, you are the author. You are the finisher of our faith. Lord, we rely 100% and completely and wholly and solely and absolutely on you. Forgive us, Lord. Cleanse us. And as we stand like Daniel now, use us for your glory, for your will, for your purposes, we pray in Jesus' name. Amen.